This episode is brought to you by Happy High Achiever. Have you recently hit difficult workplace hurdles despite a resume that seems enviable from the outside? It's hard to be happy in life when we're unhappy in our careers. And those of us who constantly compete with ourselves to be better, whose pride and very identities are inextricably tied to achieving, feel it especially acutely when work stops going well. Who are we if we're failing to live up to the expectations we've set for ourselves? If this scenario resonates with you, Happy High Achiever is here to help. Courtney Bryan, HHA's founder, started the company to provide support and resources for high-achieving employees who've hit some significant professional obstacles, often for the first time. Interested? Check out happyhighachiever.com backslash upzones to learn more, join the newsletter, and access a special Friends of the Pod rate on coaching packages. Upzones is also brought to you by Horizon Books. That's right, Horizon Books, serving Seattle's book-loving community for 48 years with one of the best collections of used books in the region. I'm sitting here with Naboo. Naboo, what are you putting in the database right now? Uh, right now, the confession of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> okay, everybody needs a little Rousseau in their life, especially in this destabilizing political time. Check out Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes, you name it, they got it. And mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount today and for the rest of this season. That's right, our sponsors are Horizon Books and Happy High Achiever. And this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Happy January, Upzonians. Hope everybody's having a great day, enjoying resting here on this first. We're... But as I record this, it's the first you'll post this evening, and you may hear it tomorrow on your first day back, January 2nd. And I cannot extend a warm enough wish for you as a listener and a Seattle or King Countyite to all of you and your family. What a wonderful opportunity it is to reset the clock. There's a lot of good-ass stuff we're going to get done in 2019 uh, between... Me and all the listeners, I think we're going to play a big role in getting that stuff done. Uh, speaking of action, we have our guest today as we round out the second half of our second season. I'll have about 10 or 12 more episodes in the can here coming up, and then we'll take a little break so I can live my life for a while. But uh, this particular episode, we speak with just a fabulous human and a, a fantastic conversationalist. And for 51 days a year ago, city councilor. Kirsten Harris Talley. And much like a few of the other episodes that we've had recently, you know, I, I try to introduce the person and the, the background a little bit and the story. Where'd you grow up? How did you grow up? What, did, what was your parents still together? Whatever. Uh, but we just jumped right into the amazing experience she had uh, when the dominoes fell, when Mayor Murray left in a bit of disgrace a couple of years ago, a bit just over a year ago now, and uh, how she ended up in the Eighth district city council seat just as the budget period was starting to spin up and how fabulous an adventure that was for her. And then, and then we kind of spun off and we did talk a bit about her very fascinating life growing up in rural Missouri uh, in a sect of the Mormon church in a mixed race family. And then kind of on through uh, her, her life to date, um, a very interesting conversationalist again someone that uh, i strongly recommend you, you track because she's going to be doing some great stuff here in seattle 
So thank you for coming. Yes. I appreciate it. Um, you, I will tell you that if you Google your name, one of the number one things that comes up is the number 51. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> for being a 51-day council member. Yes. And having watched that whole situation as I did, just as a concerned citizen and interested citizen, that was crazy. It was whole, it was a wild uh, fifty one days. I mean, yeah. tell me about your your part in it, and, and and just for everyone's background, you served uh, when the previous mayor resigned in in what I would fairly well call disgrace, and you backfilled the city council member who left. Yeah, so there was a do- there was a domino effect of sitting mayor in early two thousand eighteen, Mayor Murray, who for all intents and purposes was in his going to have his bid for his second term in scandal he resigned that creates a domino effect where the council president then gets to decide if they're going to stay mayor so council president harrell got to be mayor for i think five i think he served his full five days (laughs) I i can't remember if it was four or five that's why i say that he decided not to stay mayor that's a domino effect right the council then gets to decide who amongst us will step up. Right. At that time, council member Tim Burgess, who is in position eight, right. it's one of the two citywide seats we have, yeah. had well, already... Teresa been, is the other. Mosqueda is the yes, other. Yes, yeah. currently serving yeah. um, that same seat. But had already actually... It was known he was retiring. Right. So made... I think what folks thought was both a politically and... All, for all sorts of reasons, savvy decision right. for him to become mayor, right. which left his seat vacant during the busiest time of the year, which is budget season. <laughs> so f- fully 48 of those days were during budget committee. Right. I would imagine you knew that you were on some list when when you were being I, spoken I with. I don't know that... There, there, there are assumptions made at times like these about things that would happen, right? Uh-huh. So, so there are critical points. No one, no one could have anticipated necessarily the resignation of the mayor at the time mm-hmm. because of how much, how many survivor stories had already come out, right? So, the, so there's that's the first question: Is the mayor even going to step sure. aside? Yeah, yeah. Many rightfully called very early on. Um, for him to do so. So there's 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 things that are assumptions made based on previous appointments that have happened. So names are always brought up of folks who had been appointees in the past. Mm-hmm. I come from activist circles. So what I was hearing from the community and activism circles I, I'm a part of very early on in the domino of events was that as soon as the resignation was known was, is there going to be transparency in the appointment process? Mm-hmm. There have been mixed reviews of that over the years. What's, what's an example? I mean, yeah, I'm curious to hear. Yeah. When did they get, when did the city get it wrong? Well, I'm, those are, there's all sorts of um, <laughs> assumptions about that. I mean, I will say, I think the considerations for the, for this cycle, I can talk through specifically, it was one, the budget process. It's yeah. it's the Super Bowl of being on city council. Yeah. It's the most visible moment of the city council. Mm-hmm. It is, I think, the most visible parts of what we think of as legislative decision making that you're seeing in real time. Wait, what, it's what a very it, critical time. Ruth so I know Bader that Ginsburg, was a consider. Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> said you're uh, 
a budget a budget is a reflection of a country's priorities or something to that effect. Right? Martin Luther King Jr. was yeah. the first oh, right, to coin. I don't mean to misquote to him. Coin, well, no, I mean, but he was the first right yeah. to talk about budgets as moral moral yeah. contracts. Oh, they are, yeah, which is yeah. exactly how I view them, and yeah. many view them. Yeah. I, I come from a background of working in in nonprofit and service oriented work that way, so I had years, 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 years of experience working with very complex and large budgets and, and constrained budgets and constrained in, budgets. So you have to make very hard decisions right. between all good things the, that are needed. In the private sector, you can run a big debt if the if the project is is uh, if the proposed payout is big enough. You know, you can go to your investors and say, "Give me a billion dollars," but you can't do that in the city. Well, there's only two sectors that are really required to you know spend wisely under a huge amount of scrutiny yeah. with with as little debt as possible, and that's nonprofit work yeah. and government work. Right. Right. <laughs> to your point, everyone else gets to. Do whatever the heck they yeah, want. As long as you can make the case, right? I mean, <laughs> And sometimes get a windfall for yeah, their failure, right? right? Like right. <laughs> uh, private sector has created all sorts of circumstances well beyond. Yeah. Um, but so, so certainly I had experience in from my nonprofit work of, of looking as, at budgets as, as moral documents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the transparency question was less about, to your previous question, any very specific mistakes that were made in the past, but more mm-hmm. about what this current moment is in the city of Seattle, yeah, yeah. about transparency, period. Yeah. And particularly for something as important as the budget process. I'm an active um, activist with the Block the Bunker movement mm-hmm. and the impact that we had during the budget process, considering mm-hmm. the budget implication, which was the first of many questions that were asked of that campaign right. about the construction of the North Precinct. So take me back to the the week where this is happening. I mean, I'm just so fascinated. Yeah, maybe the appointment process. Yeah, you mean. yeah. I mean, I think for for me, it was really it was it was sort of this three weeks, right, mm. of just a huge amount of act for folks who are nerds and look at this stuff, a huge amount of activity because you because you knew when Council President Harrell took the mayoral seat that you had a couple days to know whether he was going to proceed as mayor. And then mm-hmm. from there, once you know the appointment process was open, and the fact that the circle, activist circles I run in, they weren't just asking the question of transparency to themselves. They were asking right. publicly. Right. You know, right? So it was coming up, and yeah. folks were starting already email campaigns about, like, so what process are you going to take mm-hmm. so we know who's going to have this appointment? Some some considerations were certainly police budget is under a huge amount of scrutiny at the time. There were a number of votes that were going to be coming up around infrastructure, around police and police accountability Mm -hmm. that was going to be coming up for a vote. So the union uh, contract was one of the issues, right? Union contracts were were up for consideration. A number of them were still under bid. Um, You know, there were still provisions under budget considerations around what was going to be severance and and other, you know, compensation for folks who served in the city of Seattle. There was scrutiny of the transit budget. Mm -hmm. There were certainly a number of votes tied up there. And the biggest issue, I think, for everyone, certainly in that budget cycle, was going to be around affordable housing Mm -hmm. and homelessness services Mm -hmm. and whether there was going to be. So for folks in activist circles, (laughs) pick any one of those issues. And there's a huge number of groups working in activism in our city around it because of what how deep the disparities are right now. So I think this question of transparency was the big one. With that week, what I was really impressed with is that, you know, 
I think the effectiveness of protesters, especially in this moment in Seattle, we've had it for, for many, many decades. I'm going to talk about the history of activism in Seattle. But I think what was great about this moment is they, they had a pretty simple plan <laughs> that yeah. they proposed pretty publicly. So tra- Transparent Seattle is this sort of, you know, coming together of different activists in different circles around the city and said, we want transparency in this process. Make this public as possible. And yeah. so for those three layers, they said, we want to know who's even going to apply, who wants to even be, have the job. We want to know. We don't want this to be a little tick, you know tick list behind closed doors that mm-hmm. some people mm-hmm. thought of somewhere and we don't even know who was considered. From that, we want then some sort of public forum so we have some idea of whether they have any knowledge whatsoever to even have the job. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we want a public vote with public commentary where folks can come in and make commentary for or against yeah. whoever's being considered, which seemed like really low-hanging fruit as yeah. far as those things go. Our city charter has always said that you have to have an appointment process with with some amount of scrutiny and transparency as applies to other sort of rules, but we'd never had sort of a game plan that was so clearly laid out. Right. And the, the, the council president, Harold, and the city council said, hey, yes, let's do this. We agree. We think this that we can create a process like this. Yeah. So to have that out, I mean, it was... It happened all within a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, they opened up a website portal and you could apply. And I uploaded my application. Yep. At the time, I was in um, Yakima Valley uh, while in Walla Walla uh, with my book club of many years. We were there for our anniversary. <laughs> <Good vacation. laughs> so, That's amazing. Yeah, it was really lovely. Uh, one of my book club friends, uh, Julie Van Arken, actually had pulled over when I, the, for my last bit of submittal. I don't know if you know. So when you're leaving Yakima, there's this huge sort of grocery produce antiques okay yeah. you always see it when you leave yeah. it's like apples and you know yeah. asparagus whatever mm-hmm. and so she'd pulled over there for me to use wi-fi at one point oh that's <laughs> awesome that application. Application. on the road well how how college yeah you know, it, how, was, like, it was very yeah, yeah. so because we were road tripping back but from that application process uh i think 17 applied 16 continued through the week it was pretty apparent from the first public forum that there were going to be a handful of us who I think really had some viability, mm-hmm. really. And one of those folks being, you know, Nick Lakata, who has a lot of viability <laughs> and a huge legacy, right. uh, particularly when it comes to budget process within right. the city of Seattle. Right. We now look, I, th- I think folks probably now would look at sort of the history of, of Lakata's policy and say, oh, of course. But at the time, he was the most left-leaning council member mm-hmm. in his early tenure on the city council, so has has a legacy for that. So went through that process. I was, it was for that, you know, you, know, you go in and you present yourself as yeah. best you can, but yeah. I'm, I'm not aware that there was another short list somewhere that right, I was on other right. lists. I, I've done a lot of work. Is it a vote? It's a vote of a the public, council. It's a head count. It was a, it was a, 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 it was a public vote. A yay or nay. It's a yay or nay vote. Yeah. And ultimately, it came down to three of us, mm-hmm. and I came up two votes above the others. Yeah. What was interesting is I, I was able through the week, through inquiry, and any of us could have done that inquiry, and, and every one of the council members was gracious and gave me at least five to ten minutes of their time to sit and talk through, yeah. and the conversations were really broad. Mm-hmm. And I just approached those conversations as I've always approached my work. I was I was clear. I was forthright. I was honest about my thoughts and opinions and experience. And did you plan, did you at any time say, well, maybe I'll run again? Run for city council, like, you mean, in, in those conversations? Yeah, yeah. 
It's a question I'm asked all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm you can't serve <laughs> without yeah. being asked right. really all the time. Yeah, it, and it's an interesting question. It's it's a it's a hard question. It's it, it's always a question I feel honored to be asked oh. to have served yeah. and to have folks say, "Would you serve again?" Would you serve again? Yeah. Which is really it, it makes you don't necessarily know how much impact you can make in fifty one days. Right. Me and my team went in. Um, I was. Very lucky. I had a team of all women. Mm-hmm. Um, there were five of us. All of them came in after a single ask from me mm-hmm. um, and shifted. One of one of the the folks who worked for me, you know, left her job of eleven years to work those two months, and it changed the whole course of her career. Yeah. And was willing to do that. Brilliant women, and we just focused on the parts of the budget that we knew we understood, that we could have traction, that we could have transparency about what was happening. Mm-hmm. What we were surprised to find is that from go, there was an understanding, I think, of my ideology and my approach and the way I do work, and folks were showing up and asking us to do a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. So we were being asked to come and talk to folks and, and hear more. So. Going through that process, I have a lot of experience now to think through with yeah. even the question of will I run, which yeah. most people don't have when they when they have right. to consider that. At least the first time. So <laughs> that's a really yeah. great thing. And to have experienced it during mm. probably I, I would probably most would say the busiest time in city. Yeah, of course. I mean, sure. <laughs> we had days we were there for five and a half, six hours on the dais. You bring something you said something very interesting that I just don't want to lose. Yeah. Uh, you said ideology. And then I believe the word you said was uh, work style, or, or or maybe you said philosophy, work philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had other guests um, who talk about, in particular, how ideology actually kind of, if you take a four-year term of a city council member or a president, mm-hmm. right, or what have you, that ideology actually kind of fades in terms of how much it impacts by the end of a four-year term, your your ideology is always going to be a ballast, of course, but it's actually your work style and your leadership style and your uh, willingness to compromise, and that's not a centrist statement. It's just a willingness to kind of get something done. And well, and, and if, you, if you understand that the political process is negotiation, that's right. then that's compromise right. is going to be part of that, the negotiation. That's a, yeah. Yeah, I know that yeah. Even compromise can be a dirty word right. sometimes, but I, I don't yeah. mean it that way. Yeah. And I guess, it, you know, if you drew a graph for the first, like, 100 days, which I guess 51 is smaller than 100, ideology is very important because you're setting an agenda. But yes. then over a much longer term, it's really not. I'm curious, um, and, and I guess it's to say that that is some people's opinion. I don't state that mm-hmm. forth as some kind mm-hmm. of gospel fact mm-hmm. or whatever. But I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of how, you know, um, ideology plays with kind of governing style and leadership style and... It's an interesting question. I mean, the, the 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 work I found, and I think the reason I felt comfortable in those sit downs with those council members, just to be forthright about my style and what I've done, is I have had a I've had an unusual career where I've gotten to work in coalition and work beside people and think yeah. through implications of policy and these sorts of things, really complex things, in community with other people. Many many times in my career, not everyone has that option. What what really I also had was a lot of really amazing mentorship to understand and recognize where I'm naturally a good leader, where I'm not, mm. what parts of that is talent, what parts are Mentorship skills. Mentorship is so important, isn't it? To be developed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my first major career in Seattle, I worked for an organization center for health training, now Cardia. And my mentor was a, a black woman who was my boss there. She was the president of the company. Mm. And I know wholly that understanding her style and, and observing her style and the way she led helped in the way I led. And, and continue to learn how to lead. I think the ideology piece 
what's interesting to me is I see currently in politics, and I see this really on many levels of politics, because I get to engage on many levels of politics, is that I do agree that ideology can fade as you're as you're immersed in a process. Yeah. What becomes really clear in governance, and for me, the contrast, and I think what makes it hard for many activists to consider the question of will you run to move from activism into governance, the limitations of the system itself mm-hmm. <laughs> and what it is to have laws which aren't necessarily just or right, but are what shape ultimately constraints of policy at any given time is a real, that's a really, that's a really um, deep cut from the ideology of activism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how you can really in activism, it's like, I can stay true to the North Star all day. It's like North Star, North Star, North Star, North Star. And governance is always, you know, dealing someone's with vote. less bright stars. <laughs> you have to vote. And so, not only do you have to vote, you have, you have to convey ideas strong enough to convince a majority of the people yeah. to vote your way. Yeah. The majority of the time. Yeah. Which is why I think ideology fades over time. Now, I will say this, though. What I do see with ideology is the type of traits that are that are honored mm. uh, and the sort of values that resonate in the markers of whether someone will become a leader or not, mm. I think are wholly shaped by ideology. Tell me more. I think what we're seeing in the world politics yeah. about how authoritarianism is oh, showing yeah. up as a leadership style that's being accepted by many people, mm-hmm. it, it's not lost on me that all of those folks are on one very extreme side of the political oh, ideological yeah. spectrum, yeah. right? Yeah. So a, a strongman personality like Trump, I don't think we would ever see rise through the ranks in the way yeah, certainly see. he was able to in American politics in this moment in this country on the left. Yeah. That that the, the the markers of leadership that are so revered, right, in his style just would never pop up on the other end of that ideology spectrum. That's a really great point. I, I would say that the the what I think is in the the deepest tension in the left, the the intra nascene fighting inside the left from your Hillary's and your Bernie's is the perfect example, even though I'm over it, I swear. But like but but, but <laughs> I'm glad but, you're over it. Yeah, yeah. But we, we, need, we need to be to we need to be over it, right? Yeah. But that but that what they crystallize is sort of this like populism and the, and I have no value judgment to that word. It is just a word, but like populism versus kind of like well, what would have been called in the early 1900s progressivism, which actually had a little bit of an elitist tinge to it. Right. It's still, uh, to be fair, still does. Still maybe does, yeah. I mean, uh, let, let us not forget Obama, Rugolo, yeah. that, right? I mean, <laughs> well, right, right. these are narratives that are really right. Subject easily matter, conveyed. All you have to say is the word arugula and everyone knows the yeah, word Obama, follows. Right, yeah. yeah. Subject matter expertise would fall into that category, like almost a fetishization of like the degrees someone has or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you, and they're on the left, they're quite in tension. But when you stand them next to each other and talk about a left versus right dialectic, like Trump has none of that, right? He doesn't speak for the disenfranchised. He doesn't speak. Right. He doesn't have any, you know. But I, he gives token. He gives tokenism of that. I, I suppose that he does. Yeah. And right. and the thing, right? Like, if there is a silver lining to our current political moment, and I say this worldwide, I think we're experiencing our own version of it. That's very American here. Yeah. That has all these very specific tropes, but certainly in the Philippines, right? It's happening in Brazil. It's happening Brazil. everywhere. In France, almost. France. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, yeah. you know, we're talking about Spain holding on tight, but watching what happened with Catalan's election, right, to see the way the police responded, it was like, yeah, fascism in Spain was not that, you know, we've yeah. all, we're seeing markers right. everywhere. Right. But I think the 
and, and we're seeing it in, in contrast in our side in, you know, the Stacey Abrams of the world, right. like the stoicism that she showed, yes. the way she is able to speak so clearly and so distinctly. But even the the speed at which we're accelerating of talking about what we're actually talking about and moving out of dog whistle politics, you know, it just came across we've been clearing out the books at our office and mm. just came across Lekoff's, you know, old book Don't Think Don't of think an Elephant, Elephant, which now is quaint, really, quaint right. <laughs> to read, right? Because right? it was a decoding of a very intentional needed dog whistle Lee that Atwater. was happening. It was Lee Atwater's stuff, yeah. right? And, and uh, Lester Colrove was almost more of a, of a prodigy of Lee Atwater, you know, but... but I mean, the succession, right? Yeah, we can right. talk through and the cues and how it rolls down, and but it's still a way of being and talking that r- right now we don't have to have. We, right. we have at least it's a much transparency. <laughs> there's, a, there's a plainness to the speech. I grew up in rural Missouri. It's a show me state. I come from a plain speaking people. Right. And Trump's very good at speaking very plainly to his base right. without any dog whistle about their central concern, right. certainly. It's funny um, that you say where you grew up. Because we totally inverted this interview. <laughs> we just jumped right into the issues, right? But tell me um, about growing up a little bit. Where, yeah. where, where'd you grow up? You grew up in the, in the country? I grew up in the country. I grew up in a teeny tiny rural town of 300 called Chahawi in Missouri. I was just there a few weeks ago. We still go out for a week, usually after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and spend time with my mom and stepdad out there. And so we got to actually go through Chahawi and show my husband and daughter and son and my sisters were with me and we were so it was this teeny town uh mile square no oh, blink wow. you miss it literally yeah. one of those sorts wow. of towns yeah, you're driving by it you're gone in a minute yeah i would assume i i don't know the history of the word chahawi i'm assuming it's an indigenous word yeah. that like so many places are named after as right. people were murdered and massacred in their lands <laughs> so so you grew up my, you, both parents together while you were while yeah, you were I'm up. the oldest of four, so oh, wow. four siblings. Okay. My brother and I are 18 months apart, and then there's a gap, and I have two sisters a couple years apart. And so my mom and dad. My father worked in a, a larger small town that my parents live in now called Warrensburg. Mm-hmm. And so he was a, a chemist, a scientist. Oh, wow. He grew up in Baltimore. Uh, my father's black, my mother's white. My mother grew up in between Texas and Ohio, and they met in Yellow Springs, Ohio, at Antioch University. It's right on the southern border. How about that? Uh, yeah, it's in I Ohio. don't know which state yeah. is off the border. But that's where they met. So they kind of had a, a, a small town. Even the college was, was a smaller, you know, town. Kind yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. Warrensburg's still a small town. It's between... It's a small university town, and then the, it's near an Air Force base. Okay. So unlike Chohaui, which was not diverse at all by any stretch of the imagination, my, my dad was black. There was another... Uh, mixed race family down the street and then my godmother and godfather had a farm just outside of town that my brother and I would stay on in the summer and that sounds awesome so they were black but other than that that w- we were probably the only black people for literally 40 miles around wow you drive far out far out spaces mm-hmm. it's near an Amish community in a little mm-hmm. town called Clinton Missouri w- what's race like in that scenario I, I almost feel like there's it's it, it, not even on people's minds maybe no, it's on people's it, it minds. Oh, okay. I mean, the the thing about race, right, is we talk about race in really bizarre terms that have nothing to do with the reality of how race works in our country. So uh, you don't have to be around black people to have racism. Yeah, or, or, or Latin people, right? I mean, the, the opinions people. of yeah. on migration that people in, you know, Missouri have. It's yeah. always very funny to me. Even. Yeah, no. So, no, race was very... Uh, 
omnipresent. Mm. Um, I regret that. Was this the seventies? I w- the eighties. The eighties. I was okay. a kid in the eighties. Okay. Uh, the eighties and nineties. I graduated high school in ninety seven. Oh, you are significantly so. accomplished for your age. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's kind of you to say. I was looking um, at your resume. I said she must be older than she looked, but no, you just done a lot. <laughs> I've done a lot. I've done yeah. a lot. I've had a job in some form since I was fourteen, which isn't unusual where I grew up. It's very poor there. Yeah. Uh, I always say I didn't. I didn't know about disparity until Mm. I left where I grew up Mm because everyone was equally ridiculously poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that does matter. It does. We grew up in a, I grew up in a pretty, um, like a pretty dark, dark blue, blue collar Latino neighborhood. Okay. Latino, a little bit of like Irish Catholic kind of everyone's dad did something with his hands or feet, you know, and you, you have a television, so you know what wealth is. But if you're not, yes. if, you're, if it's not in your face, it actually kind of creates a certain peace of mind in a way. Yes, yes. It's only, it really is that, the, you know, Seattle now, there's so much conflict yes. where the housing prices are going up because wealthy folks are bidding them up. And it's almost like that's what creates a lot of attention. You displace people, right? You, you, that's where you get into these. Which is why, which is why so many of the solutions we talked about don't work. Right. You can't you can't talk about fixing these structural policies and talk about anti-poverty because poverty is not the issue. Disparity is. Yeah. So wow. these are how yeah. these things happen. Right. Yeah. We actually are concentrating on the wrong part of the problem. Right. <laughs> the problem is actually about parity. Right. Not the fact that many of us are poor. Right. Because people can be poor right. and have quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, but in our country, you can't be poor and have anything. Right. You're not allowed to. Right. So. Growing up, though, I didn't know that. People, no one had anything. So it was a confusing message about race. In certain respects, people were all Christian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we all talked about the values of Christianity mm-hmm. in, in very basic terms. It's very much the Bible Belt. In my mm-hmm, teeny tiny, mm-hmm. tiny mile square town, there were no fewer than six churches. Mm-hmm. That's how many churches you Jeez, needed to yeah. serve. Now, mind you, my school experience in Chihuahua was K through eight was 58 total children in the town. So when you think about that, right, there's a school K through graduation with less than 60 kids. We have six churches that you're filling up every Sunday. Yeah. Just gives you a relativity of sort of. Right. So there were, there were these sorts of values, but we couldn't walk in the town without being called the N word. Um, My mother would be called inward lover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was an explicitness about race mm-hmm. that I appreciate living in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. Where well, that's the old Dave Chappelle routine, right? I'm yeah. sure you've heard it. But yeah. At least you know what you're getting in the he's, South. He's from Yellow Springs, Ohio, so he gets race he gets in, the, in the way that my parents would. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the contrast, there's a contrast in my upbringing. My parents talk about that. So, you know, my, my mother always jokes. My uncle joked, my dad, when he brought my mom home, that he found the whitest white woman he could. My mother's Irish, yeah. Scottish, uh-huh. very fair, freckled, mm-hmm. red hair, blue eyes. Like, very, mm-hmm. <laughs> very, you are European yeah. uh, descent. And my father grew up in segregated Baltimore, mm-hmm. which was all black people. Um, They were off the harbor, which now is quite desirable. At that time, it was not desirable at all. They had a brownstone. My grandfather worked three jobs Mm -hmm. um, 
to just keep his family afloat. My father was also the oldest of four. My mother was one of eight children. She was in this very classic 60s blended family from divorce, which was very new at the oh, time. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, her father was in the, the Air Force mm -hmm. military family. Mm -hmm. um, so complexities of being in a military family and multiple generations of military mm -hmm. family. And for my father, he was the first in his family to ever go to college, mm -hmm. which I think is why he stayed attached to academia. It was such a huge thing to right. have gone to college right. and have that education and be tied to that. So even though we were in this isolated teeny tiny town, I had these parents who were really transparent about things. They would talk to us in a forthright way. And they just always said to us, you don't need to worry about what's happening with people here. This is such a teeny tiny part of the world <laughs> and you're gonna get out of here, which was just a message. What an interesting thing to say. What, what, a, yeah. what, a, what a rare thing It was, to say. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm lucky. Uh, all of us are lucky. Me and all my siblings are thriving and doing well, and none of us were stuck there. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go back home to see. I understand the dynamics of what's happening in politics when I go back home. Mm -hmm. um, I experience in real time the contradictions of our culture. So I grew up with white folks who would say awful, racist, explicitly racist things all the time, but truly loved my family, <laughs> truly loved us. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. Yeah. Like all the contradictions of that, I grew up with it in real time. Yeah. I understand, you know, there's hardly anyone I run into. My parents, when they divorced, we moved to the bigger small town of Warrensburg. So two years ago, I think it was now, we were at a pub in the downtown and I ran into, I didn't even recognize her. We, we just had gone through so much different life experience. And just all the things. You ran into a friend. A, a friend yeah, from yeah. elementary school. Oh, wow. And just all the things, you know. Yeah, yeah, she was yeah. living with her mother, and her mother had chronic illness, and, you know. Didn't feel probably supported by the, the power Opioid epidemics of, uh -huh, and uh -huh. incarcerate, like all the layers of things. Everything. And I know with almost certainty that if that family voted, they probably voted for Trump. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Sort of the reality of where I grew up. Right. Um... So that shaped, I think, my worldview. I've, I've always had a deep understanding of people and uh -huh. people relations. I've had a cautiousness and a transparency in the way I think and talk. I had a family that openly debated and talked about things. Mm -hmm. And we disagree and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. figure it out. I love that. Yeah. Um, I was very so, lucky in that way, too. Yeah, it makes yeah. a difference, it, don't it you really think? It really does. Yeah. yeah. And we had our own interracial, um, I would call it a multi-ethnic. It's a little different. But my mother was like an Irish Catholic, very much sounding like your mother. And then my father... Uh, very indigenous Puerto Rican. Very, very. Oh, my husband's of, Puerto Rican as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And he grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. That's so funny. I was just talking to Travis. We were just talking about this. I'm, really? I'm going to keep this in. The, I, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm from New York. Okay. And then I moved to New Jersey. Okay. Everybody's effing Puerto Rican, right? Right. Here. Well, because have, of, well. Because of migration patterns. Well, yeah. and militarization military, for it, so many it, folks. It, yep. And that's what took Jason's family to Alaska. And he was just Fairbanks. saying, he was saying, Fairbanks is where all the Puerto Ricans are in yeah. this part of the country. And I was like, that's crazy. You know what? And you're the, this 10 minutes ago, we were talking yeah. about that. And it's, because, it's true. And it's because of the army base. Oh, man. And so, you know, Puerto Rico, what happened, it's very similar to any, any sort of occupied islands. So Puerto Rico has been occupied by the U.S. for, gosh, what? Almost fifty years now. Oh, more, well, more? more than that. Yeah, but I mean, so one hundred and ten, I think. So is, is 
Jason's grandfather was there, right? Like, what everyone's seen West Side Story, but I don't yeah. think they get the historical context of that, right? Yeah. And it's what you're talking about. That's when Puerto Ricans were being forced off the island. Uh-huh. You sort of had two routes. Yeah. You could you could try to get some sort of scholarship or internship or something that would take you to the mainland, or you'd join the military, <laughs> join the military. Yeah. and they'd pay for everything and take you off the island. Right. And you got Vieques there, right, the permanent base. Right. Yeah. So his family was impacted by that. His grandfather's generation with right. the army wow. and his mom and, and aunt. What stayed. a small, crazy yeah. world we live in. Yeah. That's amazing. So okay, yeah, Greek was everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the the John Leguizamo special that he just yes. did? He, he said we're fifty percent native, we're fifty percent Spaniard, we're twenty five percent Jewish, we're seventy percent black. Yeah. Like he just said. He just breaks it down. <laughs> he said down. It comes to three hundred percent. Yeah. I like I like the stage in his career he's like still like he's kind of pissed yeah but he's still I but like, he's like I, dry about it yeah I, I enjoyed that it. special I thought it was yeah. brilliant I thought it was great when too. it was done yeah yeah uh, anyway so we're way off topic yeah but, but so you said east coast yeah so New York then Jersey New, New York Jersey and then I went and worked in government in DC so okay. first I was a I was a reporter I was a political reporter and I covered I'm uh, sorry <laughs> it was it was a, it was I'll tell you I made 20 which, which years were they in <sighs> Right after I graduated, so oh four summer of oh four I started. Oh okay. Um, and you know did that for like yeah. Well, I did that for three and a half years, and then I went to go work for a dude with a funny name who was running for president. Oh and, okay. And and I you know I, where I, were where were you? I was in Iowa, and then so I was there oh, like when you he were won in the, the caucus. Yeah, I was States. there, and then I was and then I went to. Um, very briefly to to also to South Carolina. Yeah. So those were two big wins, and I was like, "Wow, this is fun! You just work real hard, and you win a bunch of elections, right?" And then I went to the Pennsylvania primary, where I don't know if you remember the history that this would be early '08 at this point. You know, I had been in Iowa so long. We won. Went to South Carolina for a month. We won. Went to Pennsylvania, and we got our asses yeah, handed to us. That was Jeremiah, right? Yeah. And that was guns cling to their guns. It's interesting. A friend and I were just talking about the more perfect union speech, right? Because that, that, that happened in Pennsylvania. Within a, was it a week? How how close to the primary results did that happen? That speech. Well, it might have been two weeks. I okay. think that sounds about right. I'd have to go back. It's so funny because I that was one of the first times. I love technology, but I'm just not an early adopter. Like it's not my jam. Yeah. And my husband was teasing me on my way because he's like, you're going to a podcast. He's like, remember when I bought you a, an iPod? I was like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, and you wouldn't use it? I was like, yeah, I remember that. Because I was just like, this is too expensive. Anyway, so we were just talking through, you know, that was one of the first times I ever sort of went on political forums was after that speech. Okay. That was just such a brilliant Oh, it was one of the greatest speech. political speeches ever And the given. thing that rang so true about that speech to me was tied to my experience growing up in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. When he said that line about the most segregated day church. is when you go to church. Like, yeah. it was so absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. I went to college in Chicago. I went to the School of the Art Institute and studied film and performance there for a couple of years. And... Chicago is one of the, still, one of the most segregated cities. Super. The vibrance of the culture that's there, compared to places like Seattle, is, it's a positive and negative of the segregation there. Right. But, like, straight up, when you go to a black church in Chicago, there there are no white people anywhere, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the same in white churches. Like, I have been literally to a hand for all the, I've been in a lot of churches, handful of integrated congregations 
I mean, it, it just blows your mind when you think about that. But that well, phrasing... that's why church is so politicized too. I mean, oh, it's all yeah. tied into it, and you know, black churches are increasingly almost like um, I'm I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but it's almost like a, a vote machine for the Democratic Party, and the evangelical white churches are, are the same exact opposite, equal and opposite. You know, uh, the, the, and ironically, they're both losing. Yeah. Actual congregations. Yes. yes. Well, maybe not ironically. Maybe there's some. Yeah. Maybe maybe yeah, there's, something, there's there. something there. Yeah. yeah. And it's 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 interesting because that's that's a thing tied to my growing up too. Yeah. Everyone was involved in church. That was your outlet for everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was our you know I grew up in the RLDS church, which is an organized sect of Mormonism. Yeah. Um, interesting. And it we did everything. My summer camp was through the church. Were both of your parents practicing? As well? Yes. My, both my parents went to that church when we went there. So my mom, I, I my love... mother grew up Methodist. My father grew up Catholic. Oh, but they just, they changed course. They just they got did. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to ask you about, because, I mean, Mormonism has some some checkered histories around <laughs> yeah. how it treats, well, for one, Everyone. people. Um, so I'm curious about yeah. your dad's experience of, of becoming, you know, getting involved with Latter-day Saints. Yeah. As a black person. Well, organ- RLDS is very different from LDS. Okay. So the re- So the reorganized sect of the church, there was a rift in the church. Is that R reorganized? Is reorganized. That- Interesting. Reorganized Latter-day Saints. There were many rifts. RLDS is one of many splinter groups mm-hmm. off of the church. So the prophet of the Mormon church is Joseph Smith. He was killed, was murdered, as all, as all good <laughs> martyrs are. Um, and... After that, there was a rift in the church. The the leg that went west with Brigham Young right. and settled in Utah, right. obviously, to the Victor Goes the Spoils. You know, it's one of the most wealthy oh, Christian yeah. congregations, oh, hands yes. over fist. Yes. In in, and it's interesting for me having grown up RLDS because you go to Bo- you go to Boise, Idaho, and there's just markers of it everywhere. Yeah. one of oh, the biggest yeah. churches is Zion Church. Why in the world would anyone name a church Zion and let mm. right? There was a <laughs> quite religious affiliation so for me i mean it was it was a positive it was our positive place it was it was a place where we came together with families it was a small congregation but you were in the middle of nowhere and as i said everyone was really poor so we did everything for everyone you took care of your elders you know i did old school stuff that kids in the 80s don't do you know we did mayday flower baskets and we'd take them to our elders and deliver food and take care of people and i remember driving through snowstorms to help you know someone's cows had gotten out whatever it was whatever people it is, needed it was a community that was how you got it and this was you know this was pre-internet this mm-hmm. was this was tele- landline telephone landline trees <laughs> smoke signals right so in the middle you... of rural missouri in the middle of nowhere where five people got called right. so you'd drive you out go. yeah and go how do you restore so i'm a fairly secular guy I grew up catholic puerto rican dad irish mom right mm-hmm. how do you restore the community that church brought without in a secular <sighs> Because I would say I'm a fairly secular, I'm yeah. not a believer, okay, but it's really impossible. And there's, I don't like to argue data, mm-hmm. and and there's data that just shows church did so much for so it's a, many. It's a people. huge. It it it's a literal lifeline. To yeah. So many. I mean, it was for our family. Right. I can the story after story I can tell you where being a part of that congregation was literally a lifeline for us. It's a question I. I struggle with my husband and I, I, I'm a spiritual person. My husband is agnostic. Our daughter right now is super obsessed with Jesus. <laughs> like, it's very random. 
So we've been talking about it a lot lately, in yeah. fact. Yeah. Because uh, she's been asking. She's seven. Okay. She's in second grade. That's a Jesus age, I think. That's a it's a Jesus age. age. And also, I like, like, I'm all about radical Jesus. Yeah. Like, you know, table flipping. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I'm like. Fuck the so bankers, like, right? All that stuff. <laughs> so we'll be at a protest and I'll be like, and she's like, this is like what Jesus did. I'm like, yeah. See yeah. how everyone's here together? <laughs> this is like. What. So she's kind of in this cool radical. But she said the other day, I want to could we go to church? And so Jace and I have to sort of talk it out. And we were talking through it. I miss, the thing I miss most about not having a church congregation, because I haven't been a part of a church community since I lived in Chicago, Mm -hmm. is access to elders. Mm -hmm. I have hardly any, certainly in an urban setting with school age kids and the part of my career life I'm in, there's just no conduits to having actual quality time with elders. That is so spot on. And it's really... And I hadn't realized, you know, when we talked about it, I was like, church was my main conduit to my elders, mm-hmm. to sitting with, you know, sometimes two, three generations. Oh, yeah. People in Missouri lived a long time. Yeah, and, and had babies younger, too. So yeah, you get, you exactly. Get many, many, many generations. Yeah. And yeah. all this information that I wouldn't know, all the stories about, yeah. you know, and my, my godmother, you know, traveled up through the northern migration. I didn't know the terms of it. I just mm-hmm. knew her life, but I pieced mm-hmm. it together with these contexts of our American history, which mm-hmm. makes it more real to me, my activism and my work. Can you manufacture that? Can but I don't know that I have, I have not. It's a great question. I wish I knew what the secular cure for a communal faith space where you yeah. gather every week and talk about the higher level of yourself. I, we don't have an alternative for that. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and, there, and all this to say, religion is highly problematic. That, there's, there's a reason people are becoming more secular. There's a reason people are leaving the church, right? I mean, Certain aspects of faith and community absolutely needed and i mean i think my biggest supplement has probably been my activism circles yeah, yeah. right like right. those those are my people like those are the folks that in the same way so you know i'm on a board for reproductive justice group and when one of our members needs something there's something to that yeah. the same way folks were on landlines telephoning each other and my yeah. church group growing up now we're texting each other who's going to be there who can yeah. so that that's been my cl- that's probably the closest approximation i yeah. have outside of right like dorm living in college or these sort of forced right. Right. Grad school for me was a very communal yeah. experience. We all had a sort of shared purpose and everything. When you do cohort stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, like cohort over, huge. Yeah. Thinning down and yeah. <laughs> boiling down to yeah. the strongest. Yeah, that's right. Among that's you. right. That's right. <laughs> ah, listen, you know, that was the quickest 45 minutes I've ever had oh. on, on, a, on an interview. Um, <laughs> I want to end the show with a segment we always do called If You Care About. Yes. You should. Yes. And I know the word should pisses some people off, but you could substitute you ought to or whatever. Oh, should? But but if you care about, you should. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fill in the blanks for me. Uh, Yeah, I think I'll talk about the organization, the reproductive justice uh, work I'm tied to. Mm -hmm. So if you if you care about reproductive people's reproductive lives beyond just whether they're having babies or not, Mm -hmm. if you care about how our destiny and our ability to have control over our families and our bodies and our lives happens beyond just medical life. (laughs) You should tap into reproductive justice. It's uh, moving beyond just conversations about whether abortion is right or wrong into holistic conversations about people's lives. Right. Planning, literal family planning. And everything, right? Through your whole life. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a group here in Washington, Surge Reproductive Justice. Mm -hmm. We have been part of some really amazing work. I'm super proud to have been one of the founding board members of the organization. I actually just had my last 
board meeting a few weeks ago after 10 years of service with them. That's wonderful. And right now what they're working on is we just had a really amazing law pass in Washington State where now folks who are birthing while incarcerated can have doula and midwifery support so that oh, they can have awesome. safe, holistic births. Yeah, yeah. And Surge is helping make that work happen. Fantastic. So if you care about people's reproductive future and ha in different ways to get involved in criminal reform and other issues I care about. Get in with Surge. We'll throw, the, we'll throw a link up on the on the post when, yeah. we, when we run this. Yeah, I'm really excited. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, for being on the thank show. Thank you. Come yeah. back anytime. Awesome. Yeah. Check out Surge Reproductive Justice, mobilizing communities for reproductive justice at surgereprojustice.org. That was Kirsten Harris-Talley. Check her out, you know, in the news. Our sponsor this week is Happy High Achiever. You heard the intro. They're helping me out. I am not just a guy pitching them, but I'm a guy using them. Check them out at happyhighachiever.com backslash upzones. Once again, all music by the subcons. Dope opening poetry sample by Anthony McPherson. Sound by Naboo. A little bit me this week. Who am I? I'm your host, Ian Martinez. UpZones has been a Cascadia Underground production. We'll see you next week.